Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Dan, you may need to turn it up. If I'm not loud enough, I probably won't do any screaming or yelling. We're going to read the first 14 verses. We're not going to go over them all in detail, but we're going to read the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it, does, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and, know, and knew the grace of God in truth." As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask once again that you would. Uh, Use your Holy Spirit to reveal to us the true meaning of your word. May it bless us and may it uh, just take root in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I want to actually start uh, going over verse 9 in detail, but there's a couple of things I do want to mention about the first eight verses, even though we're, we're really going to skip over them for the most part. And that is, uh, I've had the opportunity to study... Uh, Paul's letters and preach from Paul's letters several times over the last so many years and I'm just continually amazed at the wisdom of Paul and the humility of Paul and the you know just Paul's uh, spirituality and I think a lot of those things really come forth in the first eight verses and that kind of is his building up to verse nine and the first thing I see in the first eight verses is Paul's concern for this group of people. Um, it's interesting if you just jump over to chapter 2, verse 1. It says, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. This was a group of, this was a group of people. This church was, was full of people that Paul had never met. Paul had never seen these people. As indicated in that verse there, uh, Paul had a relationship with a lot of people that he hadn't met, uh, primarily a 
Um, you know, in those days, about the only form of communication that wasn't in person was in the form of writing a letter. I work for a, a company that is headquartered in Houston, Texas, but I live, or I, I work here in Omaha. And uh, regularly we have video conferencing and we have teleconferencing. And so I hear the, vo I see the faces and I hear the voices of these people that I work with in Houston. And uh, so then when I, when I go down there and I actually am in the same room with them for the first time, I feel as though I know them because I've seen their face many a times on the, the high, quality, high quality video equipment that we have. And uh, Paul didn't have any of that technology. And, and you know, I, I sometimes try to imagine what it's like for the young people today uh, I, I'm saying younger than myself, who, who just have no concept of, of what life without technology is like. It, it's just, it would be very difficult for us to go back and put ourselves in Paul's position. Um, you know, even the technology that was available when I was a kid, you know, just to even talk on the phone. Paul didn't have any of that, and yet he cared so much about these people. And I, again, I think that's something that's remarkable about Paul. The second thing we see about Paul in these first eight verses is Paul's humility. Uh, Paul cared as much about the churches that he didn't start as the ones he did. And Paul didn't start this church. And, um, you know, th that really demonstrates the humility of Paul. Paul was not in competition among his fellow servants of the Lord. It wasn't a rivalry. Uh, Paul was uh, willing to assist in whatever way that he could, and Paul practiced what he preached. He was willing to water what somebody else had planted. And again, as I've had opportunity to study several of Paul's letters over the last several years, I just, you know, the more I read them and the more I study them, I just keep coming to that realization of just how humble Paul is, just how much humility he really possesses, and he was always looking to give the Lord the glory. And that's really kind of leads me to my third point about the first eight verses, and that is, Paul's acknowledgement of others. Um, you know, as Paul always does, and of course he starts out here in verse 3, he says, we give thanks to, the, to God. Uh, Paul wasn't about looking for personal recognition. And, and then uh, after he, of course, first gives credit to the Lord, notice in verse 7, he says, As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister. You know, again, Paul was willing to acknowledge others. Uh, there was no competition, there was no rivalry. Uh, you know, think, look at those kind words that Paul uses about Epaphras. And so Paul was, was willing to just come alongside and basically say that I'm gonna assist these churches in whatever way I can, whether or not it's directly or indirectly, or whether or not I had a hand in starting them or not. That was what Paul had in mind. Paul rejoiced in the spread of the gospel, whether or not he was directly involved with it or not. And so as we move into verse 9, I think that really kind of sets the stage for what Paul's about to tell these people because, again, uh, we, we see that sentiment continued that Paul has great concern for these people. Notice in verse 9 it says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Now, I see several things just in those three words, in, in those three words, for this cause. First of all, again, we see Paul's concern for them. Paul had personally witnessed, no doubt, many people who had 
professed to know Christ and yet who had fallen away. He mentions some of those people by name in some of his other letters. In 2 Timothy 4.10, he mentions Demas. He says, Demas hath forsaken us, or hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. So Paul knew that there was that tendency for people to not follow through and not continue on in their faith. And so that was one of the reasons that he would write letters like this, to be such an encouragement to tell people to, you know, to, to get on with it. And uh, I think that's remarkable. Paul, instead of feeling sorry for himself while he was confined to prison, which is where he wrote a lot of these letters, uh, he was always looking for every opportunity that he could to be an encouragement to others that were part of the body of Christ. Paul knew that there was so much more available to these people. I mean, they were new converts, new believers. And Paul... Uh, through personal experience, knew just how much richer their relationship with Christ could be. And so he was actively always seeking to have other people headed in that direction. The second thing I, I see here in this phrase for this cause is the, is the fact that um, Paul has already mentioned throughout those first eight verses uh, that these people have a love for the Lord. They do have faith. They are headed in the right direction, even though they are new believers. And so Paul wants to just give them some extra momentum. Um, kind of like somebody going down a hill on a sled. You know, they're already headed in the right direction, but sometimes you give them a little bit of a boost to get them going a little bit faster. And that's what, that's what Paul was looking to do. Um, many of Paul's letters, if not all of them, are primarily written to people who already have expressed a desire to grow, a desire to follow the Lord. Granted, he wrote letters to people who were sometimes struggling, but by and large, most of those people were already demonstrating a, an interest in spiritual things. And so I think that's a natural tendency that we all have. I know uh, where I work, I've been given the responsibility many times to train people. And, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to train somebody that doesn't want to learn. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, especially those of you that are, that are out there and, and, and you've been teachers or are teachers, you know someone can, can possess great intellectual ability, and if they don't want to learn, it's very hard to teach them. And yet the opposite's true. Somebody who maybe isn't that bright, if they really have a desire to learn, they're going to learn. And, you know, Paul a lot of times wrote letters to people like that. He wrote letters to people who were already demonstrating a desire and an interest in spiritual things. And that's, again, that's just our natural tendency to, uh, to gravitate towards people like that. I know when we come on visitation, you know, pastor will sometimes hold up a card and he'll say, this is a cold call. And there are not a lot of people running for that card. You know, that, that generally is indicative of somebody that, that, you know, hasn't really demonstrated much or at all an interest in spiritual things. And yet when... You know, when there's the opportunity to talk to someone who you know is interested in spiritual things, I'll take that one. You know, I'll go on that call. And so, again, I think there's a natural tendency there. And the third thing that I see here in this phrase for this cause is Paul's rebuttal to the argument that, you know, I'm saved and that's all that matters. If, if, if that were the case most of Paul's letters would be extremely short. He, would have any, he wouldn't have needed any more than the first eight verses. And yet we have three and a half additional, chap, additional chapters. That was never Paul's attitude. That was never the attitude of the Lord Jesus. 
Uh, it was never, Paul never looked at it uh, when he would win people to the Lord as, okay, now they're saved and that's all that matters and I'm going to move on to the next person. No, Paul was about the business of discipleship. And he would write letters to these people, encouraging them and saying to them, you know, now that you're saved, that's just the beginning. That's just the introduction. You need to get on with discipleship. You need to get on with Christian living. You need to get on with serving the Lord. And that was really what a lot of these letters were about. If it was as simple as, well, you know, you're saved and that's all that matters and, and live however you want, then he could have just stopped after the first eight verses. And unfortunately, today, we seem to have a lot of Christians that, that want to live like that. You know, they just want to pray a prayer and, and somehow, uh, you know, bank on that, that uh, doctrine of eternal security and, and think that the way that they live really doesn't matter a whole lot. And the Bible really doesn't support that. It really doesn't know anything about that. Apathy is never an acceptable attitude for a believer. You know, about a month ago, we had a funeral here at the church for Fred Sealing. And that was such a joy and a privilege for me to go to a funeral like that, where here you have someone who didn't just profess a saving faith in Christ, but actually had a life that demonstrated it and backed it up. I mean, probably most of us, we've, you know, we've either been to a funeral or read an obituary in the paper where it says, you know, so-and-so is a member of such and such church, and we, we read that or we heard that, and we thought, what? Because there was no evidence of that. We had no idea that there was any interest in spiritual things in that person's life and so again what a privilege to to have someone who actually had a life that actually backed up their testimony christianity is not supposed to be a secret and god desires fruit in the life of every believer the next thing we see in verse 9 it says for this cause we also since the day we heard it do not cease to pray for you Notice in verse 3 also where Paul says that. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Paul was faithful in his, in his prayers for these people. And he was just following the example of Jesus Christ. It's recorded in Luke chapter 22 and also in John chapter 17 that Jesus was very faithful in his prayer for the disciples he was very frustrated in their lack of spiritual understanding, seemingly, and yet he continued to faithfully pray for them, and then Paul, Paul is continuing to pray for these people. Again, these are people that he's never even met. And, you know, what a lesson for us. Uh, when's the last time we prayed for spiritual understanding for our children? When's the last time we prayed for spiritual understanding for those that are in our Sunday school class? or in our circle of influence in whatever way? When was the last time we prayed for those young people there at camp this week to have spiritual understanding? This is the pattern that, that, that we see here established in Scripture. We're not to just assume that that spiritual understanding is just going to happen by circumstance. Uh, we, we need to be actively in prayer for that. And Paul was, was doing that for these people. And then Paul also points out in this verse 9 that these people, they need to know Jesus better. He knows they know Jesus as Savior, but they need to know Jesus better. If you look at chapter 2, verse 3, speaking of Christ, Paul says, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, Paul's making it perfectly clear to these people that the solutions to their problems, the answers to their problems, the way that they're going to grow spiritually is through Christ. 
It's not through the world or anything that the world has to offer. It's through Christ. And once they know Jesus better, Paul says they need to obey the will of the Lord. They need to have spiritual understanding. They need more than head knowledge. They, it's one thing to, to merely have a, a collection of facts and doctrines, but it's another thing to actually live according to those doctrines. And that's what Paul was encouraging these people to do, to practice, to take the knowledge that they were going to gain and then put that into practice, to actually implement that in their lives. In verse number 10, we see that it says that you might walk worthy of the Lord into all pleasing. I spent quite a bit of time uh, contemplating what that means. And I've kind of broken it down into a couple of different things. First of all, just consider what does it mean to walk? The word walk occurs hundreds of times in the Bible, and almost every time it's used the same way. It almost always is referring to someone's manner of living. The Hebrew definition is manner of living. It very rarely means somebody's legs simply transporting their body from one place to another. The Greek word means progression. I find that interesting. One Greek concordance says that the definition is to make due use of opportunities. That was intriguing to me because I tend to think of walking as mundane. And yet that adds quite a dimension of responsibility to the word walking, to make due use of opportunities. You know, I, in my never-ending struggle to try to improve my health, I have taken up walking. And uh, I, I many times walk on the uh, trail system over in Council Bluffs. I know they have the same thing over here in Omaha. Most of them are paved, and I noticed that most of, well, I think all the paved trails have a marker every tenth of a mile. And it didn't take me long after I started walking to discover that uh, I walk pretty much about exactly at 200 steps for a tenth of a mile. So if you do the math, that's 2,000 steps to a mile. That's 20,000 steps for a 10-mile walk. So you can, I mean, it's understandable that you, you could tend to think of walking as a mundane but, you know, if you kind of step back and think about it, think about Paul. Paul was in shackles in a prison cell. Uh, he didn't have that opportunity. Walking would have been quite a privilege for him. Or think of someone like Johnny Erickson Tata, who's a quadriplegic. Uh, no physical ability to walk, but yet has a powerful, tremendous spiritual walk. When you think of it in terms like that, then... That can be quite humbling to think about somebody who has made that, made the use of those opportunities in her life. Some examples of the way the word walk is used in the Old Testament. Again, it's used hundreds of times. Uh, many times the Bible says walk in his statutes, walk in his ways, walk in the way of the Lord. Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing will he uphold from them that walk uprightly. That's not a veiled reference to some form of evolution. Uh, in the New Testament, Romans 13.13 says, Let us walk honestly. Ephesians 4.1-3 says, Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. 2 John 2.4 says, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. 2 John 2.6 says, And this is the love that we walk after his commandments. 
Third John 1, 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I'm one of seven children, and my dad has begun to question the salvation of some of his children. That's very unfortunate, but it's understandable. If, if you observe their walk, their manner of living, uh, it's understandable that you would begin to question whether or not their childhood profession of faith was genuine. Uh, you know, as parents, we can really identify with those words there in Third John. You know, again, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. It it's, it's grieves a parent to have to acknowledge and, and admit that their children isn't walking in truth. So, I mean, we can certainly understand the sentiment that John is trying to express there when he says that. And our walk refers, the, the word walk in the Bible refers to manner of living, whether good or bad. Uh, in Daniel 4.37, Nebuchadnezzar proclaims, and those who walk in pride he is able to abase. In Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, it says, And you hath he quickened, or made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. And in 1 John 1, 6, it says, Some walk in darkness. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 3, it says, Are ye not carnal and walk as men? So it can refer to our manner of living, whether good or bad. In Ephesians 4, 17 through 32, Paul contrasts the two walks. He says, do not walk as the unbelievers, as the heathen, as the Gentiles walk, but put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness. And really, that's the point that I, I think, that, that certainly what I'm getting from the sermons that Pastor has been preaching out of the book of Matthew. That the Bible is teaching that the best assurance of our salvation is our walk, is, our, is the demonstration of our faith. It's our perseverance. And our fear of the Lord should influence our walk. We should fear the Lord. Last year when I was on one of my walks, uh, it continued until after dark. And my wife called me on my cell phone and she, she was kind of upset. She says, what are you doing walking when it's dark? Don't you know people live under those bridges that those trails go under? I, I saw a few of those people. But you know, I thought about that and I thought, Paul's admonition to these people is to walk in the will of the Lord. And that to me would probably be a scarier place than walking under a bridge, is to be walking outside the will of the Lord. The Bible proclaims that God will chasten his own children. And we need to make sure that we are walking according to the Lord's will. Another aspect of this walk is the pace of our walk. I did a little bit of research, and uh, every time Paul uses the word walk, he's always referring to either somebody else or plural, like we or our walk. But every time Paul uses the word, the personal pronoun I, he never uses the word walk. He uses run or press. In 1 Corinthians 9.26, he says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beateth the air. In Philippians 3.14, he says, I press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. When I played basketball and our coach told us we were going to press, 
there was no doubt what that meant. That meant there was going to be a lot of running. And I find that very interesting that Paul always describes his manner of living in that way. He was always seemingly in a hurry. You, you, you recall that Paul many times used the expression redeeming the time. He wanted to make the most of the opportunities that he had while he was here on earth. Well, I can't even begin to compare my spiritual walk with that of Paul. Physically, I don't even run anymore. Uh, 20 years ago, when I, you know, when I was a lot younger, I used to think that uh, if you were walking, you weren't really exercising. You, know, you had to run in order to exercise. It's interesting how things change. And I don't even walk fast. My wife says I walk so slow she, she didn't want me to go shopping with her, especially on Black Friday. <laughs> but uh, we slow down. We get tired. We even stop physically. But it's not supposed to be like that spiritually. That's the wonderful thing about growing old. It's, it should be the reverse. We should be walking more in tune with the Lord and more in harmony with the Lord. So even though physically we're slowing down, spiritually we ought to be steadfast or even picking up speed. And I find it interesting that Again, Paul, many times in these letters, when he was writing and referring to his own manner of living as running, many times Paul was in shackles in a prison. And yet he was describing himself as running. That's very interesting. In 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, Paul says, Exercise thyself rather unto godliness, for bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Spiritual exercise has a double reward in this life and the next. And yet physical exercise has a very temporary reward. If some people would take just a fraction of the time that they put into physical exercise and divert that into spiritual exercise, they'd be amazed at the spiritual growth they'd see in their life. A couple of weeks ago, there was a letter back there on the bulletin board from Tim Hughes. And I noticed just in that short letter that twice he described the service that he's doing for the Lord in Hungary as running. That's exciting. I wonder if he'll feel that way in 20 or 30 years, but that's exciting that he would describe it that way. The second aspect of this phrase, to walk worthy, that you might walk worthy of the Lord into all pleasing, what does it mean to walk worthy of the Lord? I remember some years ago when I was camping with my friend Alan Boucher, and he was explaining to me about, uh, he, he, he was talking about his wife, and he, he said, I don't deserve her, I'm not worthy of her. And I said, well, what kind of wife are you worthy of? <laughs> and he said, knock it off, you know what I mean. I said, yeah, fair enough, but I, I mean... But isn't that how it is with our salvation? We're never worthy of our salvation. It doesn't matter what we do. We're not worthy of any of God's blessings. We're only worthy of death. It's because of his grace that we get anything. In Mark 1.7, John the Baptist said he was not worthy to even loosen the latchet of Jesus' shoes. In Luke 10.7, Jesus said the laborer is worthy of his hire. If you've worked and you have 
done a good job. You are worthy of your paycheck. You've earned that paycheck. But do we ever get to the point where we earn our salvation? No. No, we know the answer to that. We never get to that point. But that's not what this is referring to. This is not referring to our salvation. This, is ref- this worthiness is referring to our manner of living after we're saved. It's got nothing to do with salvation. In Acts 5, 40 through 41, it says, And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they, Peter and the other apostles, departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Were the apostles full of pride in declaring themselves worthy? No, no, not at all. It was exactly the opposite. They were actually being humble in recognizing that God had used them and he didn't have to. They were, what they had done was pleasing to the Lord and in that way they were worthy. Again, there was no reference there to their salvation. It was their manner of living. Their manner of living was pleasing to the Lord. They were striving to please the Lord as we should. In Revelation 3, 4, Jesus says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Again, they're not worthy because they've earned their salvation. They're worthy because they have the righteousness of Christ and they have pleased him. Completely different. To walk with the Lord means to be in harmony with the Lord. Our spiritual walk should get to the place where it's routine. Not mundane. Routine doesn't have to mean that it's not exciting or cheerful. But it should get to the place where it's routine. I remember when my wife and I were first married over 20 years ago, uh, our pastor preached a message in which he said that people make the Christian life unnecessarily hard. And he said, people make many decisions every day or every week or every month that they should make once for the rest of their life. And that really, that really hit home with us. Uh, you know, we would come home, I would come home sometimes, whether Sunday night or Wednesday night, and, you know, kind of ask, are we going to church tonight? But, you know, when he preached that message, I thought, well, that's a silly question. And praise the Lord, I can't recall a conversation in the last 20 years where we've ever asked each other, are we going to church tonight? And one of the other examples he gave was giving. He said people ask themselves every week or month or whatever their interval of giving is, and they they ask themselves, am I going to give this time? Because that's a one-time decision. And again, praise the Lord, I can't remember a conversation in the last 20 years where, I've, where my wife and I have asked, are we going to give this week or this month or whatever? And if you think about Joshua 24, 15, you know, where Joshua says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. If you read the context of, in chapters 23 and 24, there's no doubt that was a lifetime decision. That was a decision where he was saying, from now on, from here on out, that wasn't, you know, well, we're going to serve the Lord this week, and then we'll decide again next week whether we're going to serve the Lord. No, he was incorporating that into his, that was going to become routine. That was going to to become part of their walk. 
And I've thought about that many times. I'm thankful for that advice. But there's a lot of decisions that just need to be made one time. They don't need to be mulled over and reconsidered and, and, and gone back on and, and all that kind of stuff. Turn in your Bibles back to the book of Genesis. I want to just take a, a quick look at Enoch as an example of somebody who walked with the Lord. Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. The Bible says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, if you read the whole chapter, and of course we're not going to do that, but if you read the whole chapter, here you have a series of people where basically they lived and they died. They lived and they died. They lived and they didn't. Neither of those words are used for Enoch. Enoch didn't live. He didn't just exist. He walked with the Lord. And he didn't die. God took him. And, you know, we're not given a whole lot of information about Enoch in the Bible. I mean, in some ways, we might find his lifestyle mysterious. How could we walk to the, with the Lord to the point of being taken? Uh, you might ask yourself, does that mean that he achieves sinless perfection? No, I don't, I don't think that's the case. But it is interesting to consider what does that really mean to walk with the Lord in the way that Enoch did. Well, fortunately, I think we do. Uh, one of the wonderful things about the Bible is so many times it's self-interpreting. And uh, turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, because there's some great insight in Hebrews chapter 11 about Enoch's walk with the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. The Bible says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony, that he pleased God. Now there's our description of what Paul is encouraging the Colossians to do. Walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. There's... No doubt, no doubt what Enoch's walk with the Lord meant, that he was pleasing the Lord. And I, I believe he was pleasing the Lord in everything, not just the big things, not just a few things, but in everything. Uh, when my, my, when we went, I went on a backpacking trip a couple of weeks ago, and it was with my family and, and several other people, and one of the one of the uh, one, a good portion of one of the trails that we were hiking on was uh, nothing but just jagged rocks, very very dangerous in a way to to walk. And my my dad was walking behind me, and he made the he made the comment. He said, "You got to be careful every step you take." And I thought about that. I thought about this verse. I thought about Colossians one nine, where I thought, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a description of our walk with the Lord. We, we've got to have our guard up. We've got to be careful to protect and guard every step that we take. One, as some of you physically have experienced recently, one step and you've got a twisted ankle or a, or a twisted knee or something like that. 
And spiritually, it's the same way. We've got to be very careful about every step that we take. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we looked at verse number 5. Jump down to verse number 32. And I just want to read verses 32 through down through 38. It says, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Now there's your perfect description of Enoch. God took him. I typed that phrase there, of whom the world was not worthy, into a Google search engine, and there's an awful lot of books by that title, one by John Piper. But that's a perfect description of Enoch. His walk had gotten to the place where he was worthy of the Lord and no long, the earth was no longer worthy of him. And that's a description of many of these people. That's what it's referring back to there in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. All of those people that suffered in those great ways. We're going to have to, many of us need to come to terms with that concept. If we're going to walk worthy of the Lord and please the Lord, we're not going to be worthy. We're not going to be counted worthy by the people here on this earth. That's exactly what's being described there in Hebrews chapter 11. All of those people prior to verse 38, all of the tremendous persecution and torture that they suffered. Because the world doesn't appreciate people who are walking in a way to please the Lord. People whose desire is to strive to please the Lord. But the Bible's not trying to fool us. We're not expected to have it both ways. We have to understand that, that if we're going to walk worthy of the Lord, we're not, going to be we're not going to be counted worthy by those on this earth. We're going to be despised and rejected and ridiculed and uh, maybe have some of those horrible, awful things happen to us that are described there in verse 37 to the point even of death. But jump down to chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Run with patience. I wonder if Paul wrote that. We don't know. It's not worth arguing. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But whether you're walking or you're running... I think the emphasis there isn't so much on the pace, whether you want to put the word walk or run in there. I think it's on the patience. That's the endurance, the perseverance. The writer is imploring these people to use all of the examples that have been given in Hebrews chapter 11 as their incentive and their motivation to serve the Lord in the same way that those people did. In the same way that the people in 
chapter 11 witness the faithfulness and the power of God we're supposed to witness the, the faithfulness and the power of God and let it guide our lives let it guide every step that we take so again I don't think the emphasis there is so much on the pace the, the Christian life is never pictured as a sprint it's pictured as a long distance run or a long distance race I, I, most, you know, we're not all going to move at the pace of an apostle Paul I'm certainly not going to move at the pace of an Apostle Paul. But I think the important thing is, I think the, the admonition that we're getting, both from Hebrews 12.1 and from Colossians 1.9, is that we're supposed to be headed in the right direction. Even if we're not moving at the same pace of an Apostle Paul, we're supposed to be striving to please the Lord in everything that we do, striving to please the Lord in the same way that Enoch did. The... The writer here in chapter 12, look at verse number 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We've got to have our eyes fixed on the right goal. Some of us are walking towards the wrong thing. or running towards the wrong thing. We've got to have our eyes fixed on Jesus. And only then are we going to be able to walk in a way that pleases the Lord. And so again, the, 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 the encouragement here. Is, is that the same way that all of these people, despite the incredible difficulty that they faced, the persecution, they pleased the Lord. And so they were worthy of the Lord. And so that's my encouragement to us, that we walk in a way that pleases the Lord. All right, let's go ahead and stand, and, and I'll dismiss us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much, as always, for the freedom we have in our country to come and to study your word without the threat of persecution. And Lord, we are so very grateful for the great examples of the people that have gone on before us, Lord. And we're thankful to you for your faithfulness and your power to deliver us from anything that we might encounter, Lord. But help us to be faithful people. Help us to have as our goal and our desire to strive to please you in all that we do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.